Brothers and sisters in Christ, <clears throat> I know, I say this all the time, um, this text is awesome, it's one of my favorites, and this actually isn't one of my favorites, but the other thing I always say about texts, it seems, is that there is so much theological gooey goodness in here. Oh, hang on tight, today's going to be one of those days. So, uh, our text this morning is that story, you've heard it, but you didn't probably think too much about it, right? After, after Christmas, like, yeah, Jesus is here, and then the next thing is um, he dies, right? Like, that, that's how it... <laughs> no, there's actually something incredibly important that happens. He is circumcised and presented at the temple. And it's like, well, weren't all babies circumcised? Yes, uh, all, especially all males, and all, all of this happened to all of the people all the time. But with Jesus, it's actually remarkably, significantly different, and there's a ton of meaning to this. So um, this is from Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 22, uh, because this is the gospel of our Lord. Would you please stand? And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, it's the text with everything. That's the, the first point in the story. It's the text with everything. There is so much in this text that it's, it's kind of hard to even begin to... to start preaching. Like where, where, do we, where do we begin the process of, of unpacking this thing? This is one of those texts where um, a buddy of mine, he he's actually comes to our Wednesday Bible study. Um, some of you guys actually know Maddie, right? So we, we go through a text every now and then, and there's so many different things and aspects to it. He gets this look, and he's like, I can't do the British accent. I'll just butcher it. I'm sorry. But you can hear it if you know him or just hear it in a British accent. He's like, there's no way this is all just coincidence and made up, right, mate? And it's just, it's, it's 
he's right. It's, he, he has these moments where he's like, man, it's, it's all so connected. There's just no way this is all a set of chance. And hopefully that light bulb, Maddie's little light bulb, will go on for you guys uh, this morning as well. But it's, it starts so simply, right? He, he came for their, they came for their purification to the law of Moses, brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So Jesus is circumcised. Okay. And then you take him to the temple. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Okay. But what's really going on here? It says he is circumcised on the eighth day. And if you're following along, <laughs> there's seven days in a week, right? So it's a week later, but the construction there in, in the Greek and in the Hebrew and in English, it's all supposed to be this way. It's the eighth day. So on the eighth day, that is the time that, that the circumcision happens. It's a little bit arbitrary, right? It, it sounds kind of strange. Like when we say tomorrow's the first day of the year, because there haven't been any other days this year, tomorrow's the very first. No, we mean the first day of this coming thing that is all new, the first day. When we talk about eighth day, and Dan touched on this with baptism, when we talk about eighth day, there is this concept that runs all the way through Scripture from the Old Testament. We're going to look at it here in just a minute. The Old Testament in Leviticus through the New Testament all the way to Revelation to the very end of time. And it is the eighth day of creation. And again, you're going, what, there's only, there were six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, right? Because the first day he said, let there be this, and there was this, and then let there be that, and then this, and then that, and then, and then resting, and then there's no eighth day. The eighth day would be theologically, sort of conceptually, a new thing that he's doing, right? It's, it's the new creation. Well, that you've heard before, the new creation. I preach on it all the time, the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. That, that's what eighth day theology is really about, is what God is going to do that is new. And he says this everywhere, behold, I'm about to do a new thing, right? Let's also remember Jesus was crucified, Good Friday, in the tomb, right? Saturday, he's, he's taking a nap in the tomb, right? He's dead. Saturday, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, God rests. Newly, he is raised the next day, the eighth day. See, it's the day after the seventh day. It's the eighth day. Well, it's the first day of the week. But again, remember, we're thinking and considering this in sort of this conceptual theological sense. So what's the big deal? Why, why, does, why is God so insistent on, on circumcision being on the eighth day? After, after seven days on the eighth day, well, you have to go all the way back to Leviticus. This is going to be fun. We don't often read from Leviticus. I'm going to read this twice. Well, maybe even more than that. But from Leviticus chapter 12, we hear this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days." 
And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer before the Lord, make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for the bear the child, male or female, blah, 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 blah. So by the way, I know that sounds really boring, but if you do it in the Monty Python accent, yeah, you all heard it, right? And you shall count to three, neither shall you count to two, nor one, but three, and three alone. Holy hand grenade. Come on, right? Anyways, that, that's what it sounds like. That's what they're making fun of. This, this all sounds like crazy gibberish. But let's do the math. Seven days that, that after the birth, right, she's, she's considered unclean. Then the child is circumcised. Then you have these 33 days. And then you bring the child to the temple. How many days do we have in total? 40. That's an important number in the Bible. But this girl, right? Oh, you have a girl, and now what? Oh, it's two weeks unclean and 66 days. And when you add up all of those days together, you get 80, which is like 40 twice, I'm told, right? I'm not the best at math, but that's my understanding. So we have this, this idea of these, these 40, this 40-day thing. The first thing that the Christ child does in perfect obedience, because again, this is what Jesus is all about, the perfect obedience to the Father for the salvation of the world is to have his blood drawn. It's the first and the last thing book-ending. His blood is drawn in circumcision 40 days later the glory enters the temple as he's carried in by his mom and dad to do what they're supposed to do. You go to the temple for the turtle dove thing, right? That's, that's what we do. When his blood is shed on the cross, 40 days later, the glory of the Lord returns to temples all over Jerusalem at Pentecost when the Spirit of God enters in. We go back to Ezra. Actually, go all the way back to Ezekiel, well before Ezra. The temple, and this vision that Ezekiel has, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, and it doesn't return. Ezra talks about that, the rebuilding of the second temple, because that temple was destroyed, that, that Ezekiel saw. Ezra, right, he's talking about this new temple, but it doesn't have the glory of the Lord. There is a certain promise of the glory of the Lord. It's, it's supposed to come, right? So we got uh, Haggai chapter 2. Actually, I'm just going to skip to Malachi. I've got so many verses marked for this morning. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. So in Haggai, um, and in Zechariah, um, we have these other predictions of the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. Now, if you don't see it here in the Christ child, then the Bible is wrong, <laughs> right? Because the temple's gone. 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. The glory of the Lord returns when Jesus is brought into the temple as a child. And if you needed any more evidence than that, 
in Luke chapter 19. I ran out of things to use to mark, so I had a dog ear. Luke chapter 19. He enters the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. We all know that part, right? Jesus cleanses the temple. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the glory that returns to the presence of the temple. This is what the circumcision is about. This is why it seems so random and strange that in the Old Testament, a woman gives birth to a child and then she's unclean for a while and then the circumcision, we've got to wait some days, we've got to do a thing. This is all setting the stage, this, this pointing, this, this prophecy. You should see right here as Jesus is brought into the temple, all of these things making sense. And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with, with me today as a Christian living? Man, if we couldn't have any more Bible verses, how about Colossians chapter 2? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Baptism. Eighth-sided baptismal fountain. Dan already talked about it. This text is actually incredibly important because it shows to us how we are not just included as sort of an afterthought. I mean, we today, we aren't an afterthought of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't about people who lived 2,000 years ago and like, you know, we're kind of on their team too, right? We have been baptized into this very thing that happens in our text this morning because the circumcision of Jesus for us is our baptism. We enter right there. This is why historically in the olden times, babies were baptized on the eighth day after they were born, just as the circumcision in the Old Testament. We become part of this story and we enter in to the temple with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus Theologically, spiritually, we are there. And I would even point out in verse 22 this morning, it says, and when the time came for their purification. So even, even as we read that story in the Old Testament, the woman is not pure. It, it was considered a both and. It was considered the whole household is understood as being not clean until this thing happens with circumcision and then presented at the temple, and then they're clean and all is good. Guess what? All of us are unclean in our sin. 
has nothing to do with, with any bodily functions or, or cycles or anything like that. Those are the Old Testament physical manifestations of, of issues and problems that point to something far deeper. The same thing I've said a thousand times. The issue isn't the issue. The issue of this, of this impurity in the Old Testament and, and all of these rituals and stuff, that's not the real issue. The issue is people are unclean until a child has their blood drawn from them in pain and violence. And then 40 days later, glory enters in. This is our story in baptism. You were circumcised, as Paul says in Colossians, but not circumcised. You were baptized into the body and the family of Christ so that the Holy Spirit enters in and you become the temple of God, which is why the second point in the sermon is location, 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 <laughs> right? The glory had left the temple. The temple was destroyed. The Lord promises that the glory would return. Now it does kind of return in the second temple. Jesus is there in the temple and he's preaching and proclaiming, but it's just a touch muted. But you see, there's a real problem there because you know, when we talk about real estate, location, 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 it's all about where I want to buy my house. I want to be in a spot here and it doesn't matter how big it is, how small it is, how new or old, but if it's in the right place, that's really important. The problem is, you know, for most of us, that's just one place. The temple was in one place in Jerusalem. That's, well, that's a real limitation for us all. Because we don't have a faith in religion, as others do, where you must go make tribute. You have to travel. You have to go on a journey to a place. And you have to do this once in your life to, to fulfill part of the, the, the covenants and the, the promises and all these things of, of other religions. That's a real pain. It's a great limitation to, to have to make a journey to a place because that's holy and where God lives. Our God has done something amazing, profound, and so gracious. He's made the holiest place on earth you. Not, not this building right? Not this space, not this area or this piece of furniture. That's what this is. These are important and wonderful, and I'm not discounting it, but these aren't the holiest places. One time as a, as a student in college, I had this youth group coming in. I did youth ministry stuff when I was in college, and this youth leader, I, I had the kids all up kind of in the sanctuary space area, and I was showing them what the stuff was and what things do, and blah, 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 this kind of stuff, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't step past where our communion rail is, and he would always say, I'm not good enough to come here. That place is holy, and I am not. Man, unfortunately, I was a college kid and didn't do a really good job of <laughs> describing him that that wasn't true and, and proclaiming goodness and truth to him and anything like that. But to you today, I'm saying you're the holiest place, not because of what you've done, not because you've, you've accomplished something, not because you've rooted out all of this sin in your life and you're behaving much better these days, or I've got these New Year's resolutions, so starting tomorrow, I can be the holiest place now, it's right now, you have been made holy 
You have been made holy so that God and his glory dwell in you. He said, well, I don't see any evidence of that. If God's, the fullness of God's glory were in me, wouldn't I be walking on water and whenever I want changing water into wine or, or doing all these really cool, amazing things? Well, you, you actually, you're not wrong. In, in that line of thinking, you're not incorrect, but those are the minor miracles. Calming storms, walking on water, healing people, Those are the minor miracles. The glory of the Lord is in you. You are holy, and that glory will be manifest in you in the most amazing miracle ever when you die and then are raised from the dead. Because that's the only miracle anybody in in the scriptures has a problem with, right? I mean, people saw him walking on water, and they're like, "Mm, okay, that's pretty good. People saw him do this or that or heal, and people were still like, yeah, but I'm not entirely sure. That didn't cause a ruckus. It didn't change the world. Those miracles had an impact, a profound impact on people around them, but it it didn't start this huge change that led to the persecution of Christians who were willing to endure that persecution to continue to proclaim their faith. What led to that was the claim that he was raised from the dead. That's the one. That's the one people wouldn't allow. That's the one that is the issue. That's the one people still really argue about today. That's the one that leads to Christians to this day being persecuted. And I I had somebody send me an article, and I'd seen it already, and I, I just hate even thinking, and don't bring it up for any other reason but to say There's a place in our world where 200 people were murdered on Christmas because they're Christians. That's in the news. Just Google it, you'll find it. Why do they care? They they didn't go after the Buddhists. They, They didn't go after all of these other religions. What is it about Christians? Because we have a hope and a claim on a resurrection from the dead. We have a hope and a claim that isn't based off of going to a place and and having that count for us for righteousness or or doing prayers and giving at a certain time in a certain way during the days and all of these things. We have this, this whole different way of being holy and righteous before God, and it's by being proclaimed, by being made by, by becoming that by his action and not ours. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous to a lot of people because it's not just in one place. You don't have to worry about those Christians in Jerusalem. Right? You don't have to worry that the power and the glory of this God that we hate and are warring against is over there, but I'm safe away from that God and that good news over here, this is what is so, so powerful about the Christian faith, is everywhere you go, the full power and glory and righteousness of God goes with you. Location, location, location. Where you are, the promises of God are. Where you are and what you are doing is manifest of God's continued work in this world. This is why it's so powerful. 
This is why it's, it's so significant that for just a moment in time, for 33-ish years, somewhere in there, the, the glory and honor and power and righteousness of God is on earth, and it's located in a baby, right? A fragile, you know, easy-to-harm baby. This one person, God, man, this, this, this thing is the fullness of the power of the glory of God. And it walks along the, the earth and it teaches and it preaches and it proclaims these things. And some are impressed and some aren't very impressed. But they did kill him. But then he came back. And that 40 days later is when the Spirit of God comes to us at Pentecost. Okay. Whew told you. The sermon's a little scatterbrained. It's, I'm trying to pick and choose the best parts. But we have to land in verse 34 and 35. Verse 34 and 35 can sound a bit troubling. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your, through your own soul as well, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I struggled with finding um, a good picture, a good idea, uh, a good mindset, uh, literally a good image to get on the screen, which we didn't get in time <laughs> because it's hard to figure this out. But there's a, there's a tool, and it's called Feathers and Wedges. I don't expect anybody to know this. I didn't know what it was until I Googled it. Feathers and wedges. This is a rock splitting tool. It's, it's two pieces of metal that are kind of wedge shaped, right? Those are the wedges. It goes into a crack, and then there's this feather, another wedge that goes in between. And every time force is applied downward, it presses out. And it really, the force can only go these two directions. This is Jesus, and this is his death and resurrection. And it's, it's not designed to, to be uh, accusatory. It's not designed to be aggressive or mean or, or anything, but, but to bring to the, the watershed point that in Jesus, we believe or not. In Jesus, we believe or not. See, we can have debates on how good a person somebody is. Well, they're a really good person, or they're a decent person, or they're not a very good person. We can, we can argue the merits of lives and lifestyles and all sorts of different things. We can go on for days about that, but you either believe Jesus is God or he's not. You either believe he was raised from the dead or he wasn't. You either believe that he is the salvation of the world and in him alone, or you don't. It becomes binary. The text gives us the, the idea that this isn't going to be without controversy. It's not going to be without some suffering and some pain and some sorrow and, and some disagreement. And he says, guess what? This kid is the fall and rising of many in Israel. Thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. This kid right here is going to be the cornerstone upon which the wise, the, the most intelligent, the wealthy, the poor, those who simply don't believe, crash against. 
And it's going to be the cornerstone upon which the church is built. The cornerstone, quite literally, a child who is fragile and weak and small and in terms of history, in a secular sense, pretty insignificant. And, and really the greatest power and, and glory and might that is illustrated comes at his death. But therein, the church is built. So for you and for me, our text this morning, as simple as it is, Jesus is circumcised. And they, they did it right. On the eighth day, went to the temple after 40 days, had a couple of turtle doves, seemed all innocuous and simple and not that profound. It's actually one of the most important events in the New Testament. For you, once upon a time, you were probably a little kid. Maybe, maybe your parents were old school and it was on the eighth day. Maybe it was a month or two later, let people travel to you. It's so all it's fine. But a very simple thing happened. Some people carried you up front, some water, and some people said some stuff, and really probably seemed pretty insignificant in terms of even the things that had already happened to you. Being born, being in a hospital, being in a, in a car seat, and, and all these other things, and all of the other things that happened in your life. It maybe seemed insignificant. But at that moment, the glory of the Lord entered back into his temple. And, and the glory of the Lord in you, walking around wherever you go, is illustrating that kingdom of God. And if you ever question if you're doing that or if that's happening in you, just hold on to this, this real promise in your death. If nothing else, in your death, God is glorified because you will be raised on that last day and all will see that the Spirit of God driving into you that wedge pushed your sin one way and pushed you into the kingdom of God. Amen. May the peace which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you please stand to pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of the scriptures, for the gift of the stories, of the traditions, the, the law, the rules, the regulations that are not the issue, but rather in those things you reveal a plan of salvation for your people. And as Simeon says, a light to all nations. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would remind us that you dwell richly in us. And that wherever we go, whatever we are doing, your glory abounds in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Amen.